Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talus Group. In this episode of Defense 2020, I'll be speaking with three experts about current military operations and the concept of forever wars. My colleague, Seth Jones, the Harold Brown Chair, Director of the Transnational Threats Project, and a Senior Advisor in the International Security Program at CSIS. Jennifer Caffarella. Research Director at the Institute for the Study of War, and Colin Call, Co-Director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation, and the Stephen C. Hazy Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spigoli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Well, thanks to everyone for joining me. It's been a very eventful beginning to 2020, and what a a great topic to begin the year on, given all that's happened. We want to talk today about this area of current military operations and the concept of forever wars. Our last podcast was on authorization for the use of military force and the parameters that we think about in the United States around use of force. And today, we're really going to dig into where the U.S. has forces deployed and is using forces. So we have forces all over the world, but there is an incredibly deep interest in what U.S. forces in particular are doing in the Middle East. And maybe, Jenny, if I can start with you, why do you think that is? Why is there so much interest in what's happening in the Middle East? um, And um, what are the most important things Americans should be thinking about? Sure. So I'd start by saying the Middle East remains one of the most dynamic theaters of conflict in the world. And I think that's one of the key reasons not only why the U.S. has been involved in the Middle East, but also what continues to draw our focus back to this region, even when the U.S. tries to pivot to other priorities. The U.S. has significant interests in the region, including preventing further attacks from groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda to enabling the security of our regional allies and partners, such as the state of Israel, but also creating conditions in which this region hopefully someday can be peaceful and prosperous and can actually stand up more on its own without the kind of American military contributions that thus far have made on the whole a very positive impact on the region, but certainly with significant ground left to cover. And I think one of the key things going into 2020 that's on the minds of many Americans is how can the U.S. actually achieve our interests in the region in a way that is sustainable, but that also leads to an enduring outcome so that we don't continue to repeat this cycle of making a contribution, but then stumbling along the way, either in the execution of that campaign or in the consolidation of those gains. And I I, I would argue that that has continued to sort of befuddle us how to do that sustainably. And that's one of the reasons why there is such a vociferous debate right now with the U.S. pursuing multiple missions. What are we doing in Syria? It's ISIS, but not just counter-ISIS. In Iraq, obviously, we have a collision of the counter-ISIS campaign and the regional strategy against Iran. This is very tough stuff. It's a very complicated region. And so I think as we continue to move forward, it's important not to get deterred by that complexity because we do have key interests, but yet at the same time, hold our leaders accountable for developing a coherent strategy and executing it amidst all of that complexity. Seth, love your take on the same. We've got about 5,000 troops right now in Iraq. At their peak, we've had 13,000 roughly in Afghanistan, a little under 1,000 in Syria. How should, again, Americans be thinking about this overall 
region and what we're trying to accomplish there. Well, I, I think the reason that the Middle East continues to, or at least one reason the Middle East continues to have so much focus by um, the media and the American public is because of the violence that has occurred. The U.S. has forces in a lot of countries, including in Korea, in Japan, in Germany. But what we see in the Middle East now is active combat. And if you expand the Middle East to include Afghanistan, we've got, as you said, 13,000 forces continuing in really what is the largest combat mission that the U.S. forces are in. U.S. soldiers continue to be killed in Afghanistan this month. The U.S. has conducted strikes against uh, Iranian facilities. The Iranians have conducted attacks against Saudi critical infrastructure. There's been tension in the Persian Gulf, more broadly, targeting ships. Obviously, the Middle East in and of itself is also an important route for trade, including oil. So I think when you bring those the level of combat with the importance of the global economy, including oil, you get this confluence of war and trade that has created, and, and, and the terrorism issue as well, that has created a, a lot of dynamic interest. And while the, the current administration has had every, I believe, interest in pulling forces out, I think like many previous administrations found it difficult to do in this environment. Well, that's kind of a perfect segue for you, Colin. Love to talk about this broader issue, but also you've been in key positions in an administration that did try and in fact was able to pull um, some forces out of the Middle East. What is your thought on how this region affects us? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, uh, Kath, and, and thanks for having me on. Um, I mean, I, I'll start off by being rather provocative. I think one could argue that the Middle East is only the fourth most important region to U.S. vital national interests, with uh, the Indo-Pacific, uh, Europe, and uh, the Western Hemisphere all being more important. Um, and yet we keep getting dragged back in uh, to the Middle East, I think, for the reasons that uh, Jennifer and, and Seth alluded to. I think the frustrating thing that now three administrations in the post-9-11 era have confronted is it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't part of the world. So in the Bush administration, you know, we invested enormous amounts of blood and treasure to try to dictate events and impose our will uh, on the region uh, with the interventions in Afghanistan and most especially in Iraq. And we found that enduring outcomes were elusive, even when we invested hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, the last time we built, we defeated ISIS uh, when they were uh, in the incarnation as al-Qaeda in Iraq was during the surge. Uh, That was a two-year effort that bogged down 175,000 troops on the ground and cost 275 billion dollars over uh, over two years, and it created outcomes that proved uh, unsustainable. So uh, so w- one problem is when we try to dictate terms and invest a lot, we still don't generate the outcomes we want. Uh, I think that has produced two administrations after George W. Bush that have tried to pull back and to rebalance uh, towards other things, whether it be uh, Obama's desire to invest more resources in Asia or Trump's desire, or at least the Trump administration's desire uh, to emphasize great power conflict and therefore more in both Asia and Europe. Um, but I think what we found is that, uh, you know, pulling back in recognition that we can't dictate events 
sometimes generates circumstances in which the events start dictating to us uh, and jeopardizing our interests in ways that drag us back in. Uh, it's like the mob, right? Just when you think you're out, it drags you right back in. And so, uh, obviously, Obama tried to extricate ourselves from Iraq, and we found that in the fall of 2014, we were dragged right back in because of the rise of ISIS. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Donald Trump would very much like to extricate us from the Middle East, but in trying to impose our will on the Iranians, it turns out the Iranians can punch back and in doing so uh, create conditions that drag us back into the region. So a, a president who campaigned on pulling us out of the Middle East has sent something on the, on the order of 20,000 additional troops to the Middle East to, to protect the Gulf, to protect Saudi Arabia, to reinforce our position uh, in Iraq, uh, largely because events uh, have have spiraled in a way um, uh, that, are, that are at odds with U.S. interests, I would argue, largely because of U.S. policy. Um, so I think we keep getting dragged back into the Middle East because we, we can neither impose our will at tremendous cost, nor uh, can we escape it uh, as we try to retrench. Would you say we're sort of doomed uh, to have to grapple with the Middle East? I mean, how would you characterize where U.S. policymakers ought to have their their heads? Yeah, I mean, look, I, first of all, all of us should be humble um, uh, about policy prescriptions for the Middle East, because frankly, I think over the last quarter century or more, the United States has tried everything in its opposite and come up short. Um, so I think what that speaks to are a number of things that that sound like truisms, but nevertheless should probably be repeated. One is that we have to have reasonable, reasonable objectives. Um, our objectives can't be to remake a region. Um, it is simply beyond our control uh, to remake this part of the world, maybe any part of the world, but particularly this part of the world. And so we have to set reasonable objectives. I think we have to be ruthless in terms of our priorities about what really challenges our interests in the region. Uh, is it counterterrorism? Is it nonproliferation? Is it the free flow of oil and gas? Uh, is it our relationship with Israel? We have to be ruthless about uh, what those are. And then we have to match resources uh, to, uh, to those objectives. And I think one of the challenges that the Trump administration has had is that, um, you know, at least as, across the administration, they They've set quite maximalist objectives uh, for the region at a time when the president doesn't want to put any skin in the game and wants to leave. And so there's this huge mismatch between the types of things that we want to happen in Iran uh, and elsewhere in the region uh, with the amount of resources that we're willing to commit. And and as a result, this mismatch has created a situation in which we're not in control, but events are creating circumstances that drag us back in. So anyway, that would be a starting point, matching ends, ways, and means. So, Seth, we're going to go kind of country by country here because there's enough important – there are enough important issues we ought to be talking about to do that. So let's start on Iran because that will be foremost on people's minds. And uh, I'd love to hear your take on where you think U.S.-Iran policy is and how the recent series of actions and interactions have affected Iran policy. Yeah, it's a good question. I think when when we look at the uh, the shift from the Obama to the Trump administration, there there clearly were several different steps that the Trump administration took. The most important was, without a doubt, its decision to uh, walk away from the the nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Uh, in addition, there was a general focus on economic sanctions as the primary tool of U.S. policy to bring, attempt to bring, really to coerce Iran back to the table. As we've looked at Iranian behavior, though, I think what has struck me, and this includes the um, U.S. killing of Qasem Soleimani with a drone strike, is Iranian behavior 
has not significantly changed. In fact, what what we have tracked is a notable expansion. So let's take the number of uh, fighters that the RGC Quds Force has trained in Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. That's the primary theaters where it's conducted training. We've seen a 50% increase uh, in the number of fighters that the RGC Quds Force have trained from 2016. That's the first, that's when the Trump administration wins. With all the actions the administration has taken, we've seen an expansion. We've also seen the Iranians continue to provide uh, assistance to groups uh, like the Houthis with more sophisticated uh, missiles, including land attack cruise missiles, which they've shot at the uh, uh, Saudis from Yemeni territory. We've seen a range of other uh, militia fighters, uh, including Hezbollah, become more integrated into the government in Lebanon. And then we've seen more recently, Iran is now committed to end the limits to uranium enrichment, production, research, and expansion, which does raise the prospects, I mean, we're not quite there yet, of a nuclear weapons program. So with all the changes we've seen, it's it's hard for me to see any major change in, in Iran's uh, behavior from the maximum pressure campaign. In fact, I think the evidence shows quite the opposite, that they have, have actually expanded their activity. And I would fully expect after the Qasem Soleimani Uh, killing, that the Iranians will hit back hard. Uh, Their general uh, mode of operating is not to strike back directly. They told their population they would, which I think the missiles that they hit uh, U.S. bases in Iraq were, it it appears, designed not to kill anybody. There, as I speak to senior Israeli officials, even since that response, they are extremely concerned about responses of IRGC Quds Force and its partners in Latin America, in Africa, uh, in other areas of the Middle East, including to a large U.S. force presence in Afghanistan. So I would expect the Iranians to continue to operate asymmetrically in the future. And and I think what we've got to look at very carefully is where are we going politically and what are objectives? And at that, I I don't see a clear way forward there. Sure. I'd start by saying I definitely agree with Colin's point. I think most people would, that the U.S. has to ruthlessly prioritize in this region. Uh, I think in some respects, the Trump administration has. They have prioritized continued counter-ISIS operations, but then the maximum pressure campaign against Iran, which is sort of the regional lens through which they seem to see the situation in Iraq and much of the situation in Syria and beyond. So they have in some ways prioritized uh, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran. But the challenge in executing any set of priorities in the Middle East is that these challenges are interconnected. We cannot simply pick one problem we seek to solve and ignore the rest. This is a thing. This is an aspect of what has stymied us in the case of the Syrian conflict since the start of the war. We want to pick an aspect of the problem to solve it, but we can't seem to do that in a way that at minimum mitigates the the ability of those other aspects of the problem to come in and sort of mug us from behind, which in my view is part of what happened to us with Iran's regional expansion. We had prioritized the counter-ISIS fight and deliberately refrained from taking actions to constrain Iran and its proxy forces during that time. And then we ended the counter-ISIS campaign militarily successfully, and we sort of looked up from that military fight and realized we'd already lost the political game. Is it your view that our Middle East strategy is more effective today than it was on December 31st, 2019, or less effective today? Jenny. 
I would argue I think that the Trump administration has established a credible deterrence. I, I think that they did that. Candidly, I'm surprised that the strike on Soleimani has had that effect, at least in the short term. My concern is that there's a difference here between the effectiveness of our policy in the here and now, the immediate effects, and then the broader effect, because we were already on a trajectory to get kicked out of Iraq. The Iranians were already outcompeting us in Syria. I don't think that we've become more successful at those wider interests, but I do think that the Trump administration has, at least for the time, gotten somewhat of a more credible deterrence into place, and I, I think that's a success for which they should be commended. Yeah, I think it's too soon to tell. I mean, no, nobody should shed a tear for Soleimani being dead. Uh, he had a lot of blood on his hands. But um, I think we're just at the beginning of this. I think that, uh, you know, the Iranians, I think, had a fairly restrained overt retaliation. But uh, you're here already hearing from IRGC officials that we should expect more behind the scenes. And I think that Iran is going to shift back to what they have done historically, which is to hit us uh, in, in a deniable fashion or to hit our interests in the region in a deniable fashion. Um, so we're already seeing more rockets falling in uh, Iraq. I think we should expect more challenges to energy infrastructure in the Gulf trying to hit us uh, in, in soft spots. So uh, in that respect, I don't, I don't think that quote-unquote deterrence has been uh, reestablished. I think that our effort to compel the Iranians to change course is unlikely to uh, succeed. And then if you're on the nuclear front, uh, since the Soleimani strike, the, the Iranians have said they're no longer going to abide by any of the uranium constraints under the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. So that situation is, is demonstrably worse. And while Soleimani was a bad, bad guy, uh, he's not the sum total of the IRGC Quds Force. Uh, he's already been replaced. And this isn't an organization that was hollowed out out, like al-Qaeda was when we started picking off their number, you know, threes and number twos. Uh, I don't think a decapitation strategy is going to work against the Quds Force. Um, so I don't see any diminished capacity for Iran to, to threaten our interests uh, in the region. Kath, I don't think there's been a notable change in, in the administration's approach toward the Middle East. And I think to add uh, with two points, one is, I mean, the administration will have and will, will continue to have a major challenge in uh, withdrawing from the region, which, which is where it's trying to go right now. And its other major uh, issue, which is documents like the National Defense Strategy and the National Security Strategy, highlight the importance of competition with countries like Russia, China, and to some degree, Iran and North Korea. The, the challenge with withdrawal in the Middle East is that I think as we saw within 24 hours of the killing of Qasem Soleimani, Vladimir Putin was in the region. Uh, the the uh, Russians, because of their operations in Syria, now have power projection capabilities from bases like uh, Tartus, the naval base, uh, the air base at Latakia. They have much more significant relationship with the Turks, have, have sold them now uh, surface-to-air missile systems. They have now a working strategic and operational level relationship with the Israelis, the Jordanians, the Iraqis to some degree. Um, and that if the U.S. were to continue pulling forces out of uh, Iraq and Syria, it would also open up avenues for the Iranians. I mean, look at the U.S. base where I was recently uh, in Al-Tamf along the Iraqi-Syrian uh, border. 
That has been widely identified as a uh, an area where the Iranians would love to move material, fighters, and money through. So if you remove, if you abandon the base there, you open up a southern corridor for the Iranians to move material in both directions from Lebanon through Syria into Iraq, from Iraq, Iran, Iraq into Syria and Lebanon. So the challenge here is that a withdrawal then invites the US's, some of the U.S.'s main competitors to expand their presence and interests in the region in ways that I would argue actually undermine U.S. national security interests. So that's, that's a little bit of one of the problems. The other thing I just highlight and, and an area that I just don't see much interest, certainly much uh, funding and resources devoted to, and, and just to hi- briefly highlight this, by the last decade or two of the Cold War, I think successive U.S. administrations finally realized that that a lot of these struggles were more than just military ones, that they were also uh, struggles over ideas. They were ideological. And, and I find it, this is certainly true with the protest movements we've seen against Iran in Iran itself, as well as in Iraq and Lebanon against Iran. Uh, the U.S. resources and tools that it has for public diplomacy have been gutted. Funding has been cut. And we have almost no serious resources and steps that we can take uh, to support these movements for greater freedom and, and liberalization. And, and I think that's one problem we have. We have a lot of military tools, but not a lot of, of other tools. Jenny and Colin and Seth, all of you have already kind of broached this issue of U.S. force presence in Iraq. And so just want to pick up, Seth, right where you left off on this point, which is, you know, you're making a a cogent argument for why the United States needs forces in the region, why it shouldn't uh, withdraw forces. But, you know, the Iraqis appear to be moving in a direction, I think it's fair to say, where they may not want U.S. forces in Iraq. What do you think the prospects are for the United States maintaining the forces that you think are important in the region? And how should we be thinking about the Iraqi domestic politics in that case in order to get there? Well, I, I think when you look pretty closely at Iraq, the the domestic picture is a little bit more complicated. Um, I think there, there have been uh, key long-term U.S. allies in Kurdish areas uh, that have pushed for um, a continuing U.S. presence in the region. I think some of the Sunni Arab community is, is equally concerned about the uh, significant Iranian presence in Iraq. Uh, and there have been some concerns about a what a U.S. departure would do. So I think uh, you know some of the some of the most vocal uh, critics have generally been some of the pro-Iranian um, individuals in Baghdad that have pushed for a U.S. departure. So I I would say I think this is a this the situation is not a case closed dialogue right now. I do think the U.S. has to be extremely careful, though, in how it moves forward, including striking targets without uh, alerting the Iraqi government. Uh, You know, uh, getting into a tit-for-tat situation with the Iranians in Iraq would certainly not be in the U.S. or Iran's long-term interest. Um, so I, I, I think, I, I think the, the, there will still be a number of constituencies in Iraq that will want a continuing U.S. presence. I think a U.S. presence, even a small one, is important 
for a terrorism problem that has not gone away. I mean, I would just remind individuals that that, that Syrian-Iraqi border continues to be extremely porous. We're seeing at least 30,000 or more uh, jihadists. Those are members of uh, either al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda link group or Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, again, with a porous border. Um, With those kinds of numbers, it's hard for me to believe that a a U.S. military departure would be strongly desired. And if the U.S. were to leave, we might, you know, we may may be back in the period we were after 2011, which is a resurgence, especially with a lot of the sectarian concerns that we see in both Syria and Iraq. So I, I, I suspect there will be still strong interest for some kind of a U.S. presence, and that what we've probably seen after the Qasem Soleimani strike is more of the emotional response. In the context of the current situation with Iran, one of my largest fears is that, yes, I do think we'll see further Iranian kinetic escalation and use of proxies. I think that's dangerous and destabilizing. But we will continue to see the Iranians double down on their political agenda, which in Iraq includes the expulsion of U.S. forces, militarily if necessary, but politically if they can achieve it. Simply threatening sanctions on the Iraqis, as the Trump administration has, is not sufficient, is not a political strategy. It may be sufficiently scary to prevent further legislative action or action at the executive level in Iraq um, because it would destroy the Iraqi economy. But that's not a positive political outcome. So what's the positive political outcome we're pursuing? The final thing I'll say in this case is that we have a separate but very much related issue in Iraq right now, which is the uprising of the Shia majority in the South against a corrupt and ineffective Iraqi state. We should be taking a stance on that. Now, the State Department has done some things to to message that we stand with the Iraqi people and their right to protest uh, freely. However, it is Iran's proxies that are at the head that are leading the violent crackdown in the attempt to suppress that popular uprising. And I'm very concerned that even without the context of the U.S.-Iran confrontation in the region, that Iraq is headed towards a civil war or perhaps worse, the reimposition of an authoritarian state in that civil war, which would undo what the U.S. has been trying, I think, rightly to build in Iraq, to help Iraqis build for quite some time. So we can't leave this podcast without talking about Afghanistan. It's the war we've been in the longest 19 years. It's a place where there seems to be a movement on both the left and within the Trump administration to exit. We've had both Trump administration officials talking about reducing troop levels. I think behind the scenes, there's even discussion of of complete withdrawal or close to complete withdrawal. And certainly on the left, you see this discussion about forever wars and Afghan exit from Afghanistan seems to be at the core of this. So Jenny, how should we look back on what we have accomplished in Afghanistan, the challenges we face today and, and where we should go? Sure. I'll start by saying this is another problem set I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, actually, to deal with the situation in Afghanistan. I think that the U.S. has pursued some very admirable goals and achieved a lot of important successes. I think that's as true in Afghanistan as it is in the Middle East. Even though we have not achieved the outcome that we have desired, we have prevented um, significant attacks on the United States from being planned and executed from Afghanistan. That was not a given. 
at any point in this process that we would succeed at that. And it's a testament to the incredible hard work and bravery of our armed forces and all of the diplomats and other Americans involved in this effort to say nothing of our NATO allies. I think we should be proud of what we've accomplished in Afghanistan. And yet, I think there are many Americans that are asking a very valid question, which is, how does this end? What is the plan? I, I commend President Trump in, in many regards for coming in and trying to shake up pre-existing assumptions. I think that's always a healthy thing to do. In this case, though, I don't think that we are headed towards a outcome that we are likely going to be willing to accept. But I think that's the key question. What are we willing to accept? And do you mean specifically when you say that in terms of a peace deal with the Taliban? I mean in terms of the outcome. Are we willing to accept ISIS conducting attacks from Afghanistan? Are we willing to accept the potential that the Taliban, we reach a deal with the Taliban as sort of the mechanism, but that the outcome is that they break the deal or a civil war reensues and the state collapses again? I think that those are all entirely possible, if not likely, outcomes of a U.S. negotiated settlement with the Taliban and then withdrawal. If we're willing to accept that as a nation, then perhaps that's the right call. Thus far, we haven't been willing to accept that. That's why we're still there. And I think that's a tough conversation we need to continue to have as a nation. And candidly, I wish that we had it more. I think it's good when this issue comes back into the spotlight and into the national debate, because I don't think that the American public has been adequately sort of involved in this and hasn't been informed enough to hold our elected leaders accountable. So I personally would like to see this debate continue. So, Colin, this idea of forever wars has become commonplace verbiage terminology. Do you find that it's helpful to how we think about where we need to go next on U.S. foreign policy and security policy? How do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it more captures a mood than it does a, a theoretical concept. Um, I mean, but the mood is real. Jenny uh, mentioned the frustration that many many Americans have. Afghanistan is, you know, now America's longest war. Uh, an 18-year-old Marine or, or U.S. Army soldier uh, in Afghanistan wasn't born on 9-11 uh, or when the war was launched. Um, so these wars feel like they're forever. They are, they're also forever in the sense that there's no, you know, uh, uh, victory celebration at the end. There's no kind of culmination to them. Um, I think where the term is unhelpful is that uh, whether it's in Afghanistan or in the Middle East, um, I don't think an all-in or all-out model um, is is the right answer. I think all-in um, uh, means that we spend enormous amounts of blood and treasure uh, searching for, you know, trying to achieve maximalist objectives we are incapable of doing. Um, and all-out uh, gives uh, too much control uh, to events in the region, uh, whether it be the collapse of a government in Afghanistan or the reassertion of groups like al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, uh, using uh, the borderlands between Afghanistan and Pakistan as a safe haven to plot attacks against the homeland, that an all-out model also uh, leaves us exposed. The question is, what is the de minimis uh, number of U.S. forces that could be present in Afghanistan to ruthlessly protect uh, the, the very narrow uh, self-interest that we have in not uh, seeing that area become a platform uh, or safe haven for for attacks against uh, the United States, um, and and you know we struggled with this as as you know, Kath, we struggled with this at the end of the Obama administration, where there was a strong desire to get down 
to, you know, below a thousand forces inside of Afghanistan. And yet the Pentagon and the intelligence community kept saying, well, if you're going to have 500 forces and you're really going to be able to protect them, uh, then you need hundreds more. And if you give up this base, then you won't be able to draw, fly drones all of the time and you'll lose intel and these certain assets. And, you know, it's very easy to go from 500 to 5,000 um, as, as the interagency sits around and debates these things. But I do think that we have to, I think we know what the answer is. The answer is that we need to move towards a de minimis counterterrorism presence in Afghanistan and the region, and that we have to have some deal between the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban that builds a bridge to that outcome. But just, you know, that, that looks great on a PowerPoint slide. Actually making it happen is, is as we know, hard, 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 hard. So let me end then on this question to Seth about counterterrorism. Where are we going in terms of CT policy and as it relates to these major operations that we've been involved in? Well, I think we're in a period where uh, we are looking at transitioning away from conducting uh, sustained counterterrorism operations on multiple continents. And, uh, you know, there's a notable debate about continuing to withdraw U.S. forces from parts of Africa, uh, from the Middle East. And and as Colin just noted, uh, at least a, a de minimis uh, strategy to continue to pull out forces from Afghanistan. So I think what we're faced with, and when, when you look at the special operations community more broadly, whether it's at U.S. Special Operations Command or in special operations in the Pentagon, uh, they have clearly shifted towards a focus away from counterterrorism in, in many ways and towards uh, what is their role in competition with states. So I, I think the, the challenge, though, is there are so many other components of counterterrorism, the uh, uh, diplomatic engagement to try to end uh, a range of the wars that provide opportunities for individuals to gain sanctuary in some of these states, to some of the development programs, to information campaigns. Looks like what we're not going to do is pull out from some of these regions, put additional resources into these non-military aspects. It looks like we're just going to simply try to move on to state-based competition. So I think in that sense, we haven't learned uh, 20 years after 9-11 that counterterrorism is a lot more than just military action. And why that makes me concerned is that assuming we do withdraw a range of our military forces, we will not have addressed most of the terrorism problems, and we will have to continue to deal with them, whether we're talking about Somalia, Libya, Mali, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, or Pakistan, or even in Yemen in the foreseeable future. Thanks to everybody for joining me today. Thank you. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.